Tonight we begin a study in the epistles of John. One, two, three, John. Now, I'm not trying to sell you anything. I don't make a dime if you buy it or you don't. It's not actually the version of the Bible that I use. But some of you who took a, a Scripture course or a New Testament course or an Old Testament course in college uh, might have had a Revised Standard Bible, a hardback edition. It was the textbook required for that class, and usually it was the Revised Standard Version. Well, Baylor decided to redo that for their students who were taking, and this is uh, the new textbook, and uh, it really does have some fine scholars in it. Some of you are familiar with N.T. Wright or Walter Brueggemann and a lot of names like that in here. But I was asked to assign the Johannine Epistles in this uh, called now Baylor Annotated Study Bible, the New Revised Standard Version. And so if you went to 1 John, 2 John, or 3 John, you know, you had the Bible up top, and then you had the notes or exegesis below, and then 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, it's my notes in here, and uh, they try to keep you pretty brief, and so you have to, it's one of those things, you write it, and you strike every other word and see if it still says the same thing, then you strike every other word and see if it still sees, says the same thing, because they want more Bible than they want commentary. Uh, but, so I've studied 1st John quite a bit, getting ready for that, and I find that they are very interesting books, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and that's where we'll find ourselves, and we're going to begin tonight with the introduction of 1 John. The first question that ought to be on the table, if any talk, anybody talks about the first letter of John, is who wrote it? Who wrote it? Now you say, of course John wrote it. Well, now, wait a minute. It doesn't say John wrote it. So you can't just say, of course John wrote it. Yeah, if you were reading Galatians, it says Paul an apostle. You can say, well, of course Paul wrote Galatians. But you can't say that about 1 John because it doesn't say who wrote it. Now, I'm going to argue that it is John, but I want you to be able to argue that. If anybody would ask you, why do you think the apostle wrote 1 John? Because it doesn't say. There's another New Testament letter that does not identify the author, and many, many of you already popped that in your head, but it would be Hebrews, whomever he or she might be, who wrote the uh, epistle uh, Hebrews. So we do not know the author uh, clearly stated of Hebrews or of 1 John. It does seem as if we do have a little bit of identification in 2 and 3 John. We'll get to that when we get there. But it seems like the same person wrote all three letters. And so that helps us a little bit as we study uh, this first letter of John. It, they are good letters. And uh, I'm glad you're here to go through these with me. But the authorship, who wrote the book? Well, we want to look at what the folks on the outside say. Internally, it doesn't say. So let's look for a moment externally. And the big question is, if you look at history, well, to whom does history assign the authorship of 1 John? Irenaeus, who was a second century believer, a church father, said it was written by the beloved disciple whom he identified as John. Uh, that is the disciple John. He is the son of, everybody knows, right? You with me? Son of Zebedee, and he has a brother named James. You follow me? So uh, Irenaeus said that it was John the Apostle. Clement of Alexandria, another church father, Clement said it was John the Apostle. Tertullian uh, also said, now Tertullian kind of bridges second and third century 
He's a little older than the other two, but he similarly said, it is John's work. Origen, another great scholar of the second and third century, says that it was written by John. From the very earliest days. Now, there's some books in the New Testament that I had a hard time making it into the New Testament, like the book of James. Well, the, John's first letter never had trouble. It had the authority and was treated like Scripture from the very beginning. And it was assigned to the Apostle John from the very beginning. In fact, I'm so certain of it, I can tell you there was no other theory out there. You cannot find any other patriarch of the church that says someone else wrote it. Now, for some other books we, that even state the author, I can show you other theories from the church fathers. But when it comes to 1 John, it was unanimously agreed upon by every extant or existing writing we have by the church fathers that it was written by no less than John the Apostle, one of the inner three disciples of Jesus, someone who's very close to our Lord, the one the Lord says, that's the disciple I love, the one who wrote that majestic and powerful fourth gospel. So if that guy has something else to say to us about Jesus or the church or theology, I think we need to listen. So these next few weeks, we're going to pull up a chair, sit down at the feet of John the Apostle by reading this letter, and see what John has to say to us in this letter that he writes to various churches. So externally, the witnesses are the same. It was written by John the Apostle. On the inside, like I said, like Hebrews, there is no clear testimony. But Hebrews gives you absolutely no hint at all. But I would actually argue that this first letter in the very first and second verse tries to give us a little hint in regard to authorship. So turn there to 1 John. Now you know Sunday night's a little deeper water, so you need to open that Bible up to 1 John or get out your tablet or phone or whatever and look up the first epistle of John what was from the beginning now that ought to hit you like a two by four at the very start we'll look at why that should hit you like a two by four in a minute but what was from the beginning but I will ignore that for a moment but look at the next words what we have heard what we have seen with our eyes what we have beheld. If you didn't get it with seeing, we also behold it. You see that? And not only that, our hands handled it, touched it concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen. Again, here's the third verb saying that, that this writer has actually seen Jesus. We have seen and we bear witness and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, it was manifested to us. So whoever wrote this particular letter wants the reader to know from the very start, I'm about to tell you about something. And what I'm telling you about, I really do know about. Because I heard, I saw, I beheld, I touched, I was there. When it happened. So that counts out a lot of people, doesn't it? 
If someone is claiming to be that close to Jesus, you start numbering the disciples and discounting the other ones, and it, you realize pretty quickly that that path leads to John the Apostle. Maybe you've had something like that before. Someone asks your opinion, or someone, let's say someone calls and asks you for a reference for somebody who's applied for a job. Now, there's two kind of replies you can make. You can say, I don't know her that well, but everything I do know is positive. You've made that kind of reference before, perhaps. Or there's that other reference call, you know her so well, you trust her so well, you would say, I can tell you this, if you get the opportunity to hire her and you don't, then that's a foolish decision. She is that good. Let me tell you, and they finally just hang up the phone because you won't stop saying good things about her. You are that certain of the quality that she would be as an employee. This is that second kind of testimony. He didn't say, I heard about Jesus or some folks are saying about Jesus. What he says was, I heard, I saw, I beheld, I handled, I saw. A third time, he wants you to know for sure that he's heard, seen, looked, and touched. He is an eyewitness. The life appeared, he says in verse 2, and we have seen it. Whoever wrote this book, was an original eyewitness of the ministry and the life of our Lord. That is in complete harmony with the idea that John the Apostle, the son of Zebedee, the brother of James, is the author of this work. Well, whoever wrote this epistle has an unmistakable air of authority. Those who are receiving the letter are expected to respond in obedience to the writer of the letter. Do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, there's some people who write you and, you know, well, that's, that's one idea. I might or might not do it. Then there's other people in your life, if, if she wrote you or he wrote you, you would say, well, that's coming from you know who. We just got to do it. Well, this is that second kind of influence. In fact, he sees them as his children. He refers to them throughout the letter as dear children. And just like they are his children in the faith, he expects as their spiritual father not only to be heard, but to be obeyed. It's that kind of a authority, a voice, a voice of an apostle, a voice of one who's loved them, the voice of one, I believe, called John. Now, there's a Another thing we're going to see, we're going to see this throughout as we go through it. If, you've, if you haven't done this, this would be a good exercise. It doesn't take that long. It'd be a great thing to do. You know, sometimes we read Scripture, we chop it up so much. Like, you say, I'm going to read the Gospel of John. You read, oh, I'm going to read three chapters today, and I'm going to read three the next day. Well, you can't remember what, what you read the, the first day on the seventh day. Sometimes just sit down when you've got... You could do it in two hours for sure, I believe. Sometimes just sit down and read the Gospel of John and then read 1 John and then tell me they're not written by the same hand. You can't say that. It's the same imagery. Imagery like in the beginning. Imagery like life and light and eternal life and the enemy or speaking of Satan. So over and over again, 
the images and the sounds that come from this epistle remind us as if we are reading something we're familiar with. And then you think, well, it sounds a whole lot like that fourth gospel, also known and believed to be written by the blood disciple, which we also believe to be the apostle, the apostle John. It sounds a lot like it. Well, why did he write it? So, the authorship, I'm going to land with John the Apostle. You want to land somewhere else. It doesn't say who wrote it. You help yourself. But I'll just tell you there's no one in the New Testament cloud of witnesses that agrees with you. There may be a scholar or two who agrees with you, but there are no scholars of antiquity who agree with you. I often think those old patriarchs of the church who were closest to the scene, you know, those who were born like Polycarp was a, uh, was a disciple of John himself. Those early voices who were closest to the action are voices we certainly should not discount. And why would a scholar come around in the year uh, 2020 and say, no, they got it all wrong back there in the second century. I just don't have that much uh, confidence in my own abilities. So why? So we know who wrote it now. Well, we believe we do. There always has to be some humility there. But why did John write this letter? There is a heresy forming early in the church. One of the earliest heresies that formed the church, I'm going to keep it as simple as I can. It was called Gnosticism. And there you see the word gnosis. It's spelled with a G-N, Gnosticism. And in that you see the word gnosis, which is the word knowledge. And what it was thought was this. Salvation does not come by faith. Salvation comes from insight or knowledge. And it, was, it developed more fully in the church through the years, but even at the beginning. And so how one is saved is not through the blood of Jesus on the cross. In fact, Gnostics didn't even believe Jesus was really in the flesh. They, they somehow have him not on the cross, but he escapes before he goes to the cross because they don't want a earthly Jesus. They want a spiritual Messiah. And so they, it's everything against the incarnation. And if you know, if there is any gospel writer who's for the incarnation, who is it? It's John. The word became what? Flesh and dwelt among us. Well, the Gnostics, the Gnostics didn't believe the Word became flesh. They thought you had to have a knowledge, and they thought they held the knowledge. In fact, quite frankly, it sounds a lot about, I say it still goes on the church today. Every so often, 10 or 12 years, somebody will write a book. It takes a scripture. It takes out a context. They start having conferences and camps, and everybody wants to know, have you read that book, and do you know Brother Jones's formula. Well, I don't need to know Brother Jones's formula. There's nothing new under the sun. It is faith in Christ Jesus. Anyone who has a special code word or mystical interpretation is like a Gnostic in the first century, and they are not to be studied. They are to be avoided. And so it was. They thought salvation came by knowledge or illumination, by gnosis, and they did not like a fleshly Jesus. That didn't make sense that the Messiah would put on flesh and being crucified. He had to, the spirit of the Christ left before the crucifixion. Oh, John was against the Gnostics. They left the church. They were tearing up the church. Now, John, we know from history, 
had his own, Jesus had a disciple named John, brother of James, son of Zebedee. John had a disciple named Polycarp. You following me? Now, Polycarp tells a story. Uh, he tells a story, and I assume there's some veracity to the story. Since Polycarp was a disciple of John, he tells a story. There was a, a chief Gnostic by the name of Serenthus. Serenthus. And Serenthus was in Ephesus, where John the Apostle was during his days in Ephesus. And you can imagine that in the church, it was John the Apostle who believed in the incarnation, and there was Serenthus who believed in a secret knowledge for salvation. And, well, the two didn't get along very good. And in Ephesus, you know, everybody didn't have a bathtub in their house. There were public baths when you need a bath. And so John the Apostle was getting one of his baths, maybe one of his 7,000 we learned today. Back then, I don't think they got 7,000. But he was getting one of his baths in a public bath, and he's in there. And John is unclothed in the bathhouse in Ephesus. And Serenthus, the heretic, the Gnostic, comes in. And John is so afraid that lightning is going to strike the public bath that he flees naked out of the public bath. Now, Polycarp, his disciple, wrote that. You won't find that in Galatians or Romans. Let's just, let's just keep this to ourselves. People on the radio, don't tell people this story if you would. But there is a little secret story about John the Apostle that he was so worried about Serenthus and Gnosticism, and this knowledge salvation that doesn't have a fleshly Jesus, that he was willing to flee uh, naked through the streets to avoid the lightning that was going to strike the bathhouse if he got into the bath with Serenthus. So there you go. So what's the purpose of the letter? It comes at a critical period for the church. The church is carrying forth the theology of Jesus. Jesus has been crucified and resurrected. The apostles are aging, probably John the last and the oldest among them. And it's a time in the life of the church when it is really important for them to have the right theology. Now, John is a little bit different than Paul. Paul is what we call a direct personality. If Paul didn't like something about you or about what you're teaching, He'll be sarcastic. He'll be a little bit nasty. He'll be direct. Go read 2 Corinthians. Paul doesn't mess around. If you're on the other side of Paul, you get ready. Paul's bringing it. John's not quite like that. John's a little softer. John says, let me teach you against falsehood by telling you the real truth. And so he doesn't speak a lot directly, though he does mention the false teachers, chapter 4, who've gone out of the church. It's a little more indirect in that he wants you to know if you know the real gospel, if you know the fleshly Jesus who was crucified and resurrected with a bodily resurrection. That's why it's important to us that he had a bodily resurrection, not just his spirit went to heaven. No, it was a bodily resurrection. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And and we are redeemed like the seed in the ground, Second Corinthians, and we, we are changed in a, a glorified body. So there we have the idea of the purpose is to teach truth. It kind of reminds me of um, they were trying to teach people to spot counterfeit, and for the first week they just stared at real bills. And one of the students said, how am I ever going to recognize counterfeit if I just keep looking at the real thing? He said, that's the way you'll recognize counterfeit because you've memorized the image of the real thing. You look at a real $20 bill long enough, and then when one that's a little shade off or feels a little different comes in, you'll tag it. 
That's the way John works. He wants them to see the real gospel in this letter. Okay, so that's the purpose. It's written by John. And the form and destination. We call it the first epistle of John. I bet in your Bible, if you look on that first page, it says the first epistle of John. Now, of course, that's not inspired, nor in the original copy. That is uh, someone's interpretation. I do think it's a letter, but it's an odd kind of letter. It's not a letter like Paul writes a letter. It doesn't have the author, doesn't tell us who wrote it, doesn't really state the recipients that clearly. It doesn't have a greeting. It would be like Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus to the church at Philippi, and he's going to go on, and he's going to give a, a greeting Grace and peace be to you. Whatever letter it is that Paul's writing of the 13, uh, Galatians doesn't have a thanksgiving, but all the rest have sender, recipient, greeting, grace, and peace. And then I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, a thanksgiving. And you show me that in the beginning of this letter. Not there. And in Paul's letters, even if he hadn't been to the city, like Rome, he lists a lot of names. Say hi to... Uh, greet so-and-so, show me that in this letter. It's not there. The concluding remarks don't sound like a letter. The opening remarks don't sound like a letter. It doesn't feel like a letter. It seems, it feels kind of like a sermon. In fact, put in a letter form. Uh, so John's writing this kind of letter that sounds more like a sermon. And he writes it to the dear children probably wrote to more than one Asiatic community, various churches who needed the word as this Gnosticism was spreading, including the church at Ephesus. Well, what is the relationship of this letter to the fourth gospel? I touched on it a little bit earlier. We'll see it as we go through it, but the themes are the same over and over again. Light and life and love and eternal life and Christ as the logos of the word we see this uh, throughout it as, as we go through. Well, let's begin in our text just a little bit here. Let's begin in 1 John. Let's start with chapter 1 and verse 1. What was from the beginning? Now, right now, if you've ever read the fourth gospel, the gospel of John, you're saying, whoa, 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 that sounds familiar. And if you're reading the fourth gospel, then that'll sound like what? Genesis. So here in this first line, we have an echo of his gospel, which is the gospel of John, which is an echo of Genesis. Genesis starts out, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? And then how does that uh, fourth gospel start? In the beginning was the logos, the word. And the word was with God. And the Word was God. And then he tells us that the Word, the Logos, actually was a creative agent. And then he tells us that the Logos was the light, and John was not the light. And then he tells us that the Word put on flesh and dwelt among us, which is language of putting up one's tent. The Word became flesh, put up its tent, and dwelt uh, among us. So it, it begins that way. What was from the beginning? And the beginning was the Word. You see how it dovetails together? What was from the beginning? And the gospel in the beginning was the Word. 
what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes and beheld with our hands and handled concerning, here it is, the logos of life, the word of life. Do you see the interesting listing of the senses? We have touched last. We have seen in the middle. But the first one is what? What do you do to a word? You hear it. In the beginning, and we heard it. It was a word. Wouldn't Paul say something like that? We preach Christ. He is the word. He is. Christ is both the preacher and the sermon, right? Or, or think about the author of Hebrews saying, oh, there's lots of, way, lots of ways in earlier days that God spoke to us. But in these last days, he spoke to us through Jesus, right? Through his son. So in the beginning, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we beheld with our hands and handled concerning the word of life, and life was manifested. Manifested means it, it was right there with us. It made an appearance. And we have seen and bear witness. In case you missed it, I've seen it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life. Eternal life. Now, is John ever interested in eternal life? If you don't know any other verse in the Bible, you know John is interested in eternal life, John 3, 16. How do we have forever life? John is interested in forever life, which was with the Father. Oh, who was with the Father? The Word was with the Father. What does, it tells us in, in Scripture that he existed in the glory of God, and then Philippians, he humbled himself, and now notice he was made an appearance to us. What we have seen and what we have heard, we proclaim to you also that you may have fellowship with us. The word for fellowship here is the idea of having something in common. Having something in common. We have this word of life. The word is a Johannine or a John word, but so is life, isn't it? Think about John 14. You know that passage well. Jesus says, you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house or anybody here ever been to a funeral? In my Father's house or it, why don't we use it a lot at funerals? It's good. That's why. In my Father's house are many dwelling places, mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare, Thomas says, Lord, wait a minute. Time out. We do not know where you're going. And Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Life. The word of life. It sounds so much like John. Or think about when Lazarus dies and the sisters are wringing their hands and Martha runs out and says, if you had been here, then he would not have died. And Jesus says, oh, I am the resurrection, and I am what? Life. You see that? Life. John wants you to know about this eternal life. So this language sounds familiar to us. So he wants them to have fellowship, back to verse 3, having something in common. When we have something in common, we have fellowship. Well, 
He wants them to have fellowship and then have fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. The reality is we must have fellowship experiencing the presence of fellow believers, experiencing the presence of God, and, and experiencing the presence of the church through Christ Jesus. So, so here's his purpose, that he wants them to have fellowship, wants them to know the truth. And another purpose is in verse 4. And this is also from the Gospel of John. We write these things that our joy might be complete. Verse 4, bring us joy by having a relationship with you. You cannot have a relationship with God without having a relationship with Jesus. Now, why anybody wants to debate that, I do not know. It's not up for debate. You cannot have a relationship with God unless you have a relationship with Jesus. All Christian fellowship is built upon the core belief that Jesus is Lord. No other foundation will work. Now, you might be something else, and we might can be friends, and we might can have a theological discussion, but the reality is we're not brothers in Christ unless you too affirm, affirm that he was the unique son of God, that he died a sacrificial death, that he rose on the third day, ascended to heaven, and he's coming back for his people. If you can't agree to those basic tenets of the faith, then, then we can't really have fellowship. Look at verse 3. You have fellowship with us. And that is through fellowship with the Father, and, well, don't leave it out. It has to be based on His Son, Jesus Christ. And in those things, then our joy is made complete. Well, it continues in, in verse 5. Walking in the light, verse 5 through 10. And this is a message we have heard from Him, and we announce to you that God is light. God is light. Now, I'm not going to do this to you any more than I have to, but you got to go to John 1. You, you got to see this thing of being light. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Logos, the Word, was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things came into being by Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life. And the life was, there it is. What's another key term for John? Life, love, light. In Him was the light of men. And light shines, and a lot of emphasis in John on darkness. Light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it, didn't understand it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for a witness that he might bear witness of the light that all might believe through him. John was not the light, but he came that he might bear witness of the light. There was a true light which coming into the world enlightens every man, and so he goes forth with the light. Now back to 1 John, verse 5. Chapter 1, verse 5. And this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light. The idea of God being light carries numerous and different things. And we're told in the Gospel of John in chapter 1, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 12, two times that Jesus is the light. The idea of the light is the idea of revelation or illumination. God is light, meaning God reveals. 
He sheds light. Don't stumble around the darkness. Follow the light. And then the second idea of light is this idea of holiness or or glory. In fact, we understand from the Psalter that, that God dwells, Psalm 104, he is clothed in light. It's kind of this unapproachable light, this holiness, the flawless perfection of God. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make him to be a liar, and his word is not in us. Well, I'm looking at the clock, and we do not have time to tackle sin and light and confessing sin and the blood of Jesus in three minutes. So we will stop right there. In summary, who wrote this book? Everybody from the second century on says it's written by John the Apostle. Why did he write it? Because there was a false notion about salvation that started in the church saying it wasn't through the blood of Jesus or faith in the power of Jesus. It was through having a special knowledge and it de-emphasized the incarnation or the physical nature of Jesus. Does he rant and rave against the heresy, the Gnostics? No, he doesn't. He preaches the truth. And does it sound like the fourth gospel? If I read passages, maybe we should do this for your quiz. I won't give you a quiz. Don't stay away because of quiz. But I promise you, I could read portions of 1 John and the Gospel of John and say, which one's it from? And you can't tell me. I can't tell you because they sound so much alike. You might think, well, it sounds a little, the, the, the Gospel's a little bit different, but the tone is, if I short, read a short, just a short phrase, you'd say, it could go either way. It could go either way. It's going to be exciting. I hope you'll be here. Next week we'll look at the false teachers were saying we don't have any sin and we don't need the blood of Jesus. And he's going to tell them, well, you do have sin, you're liars, and you need the blood of Jesus. But the good news is if you confess, let us pray. Oh, God, what a rich word. What a powerful word. Thank you for this testimony of one that indeed has heard, seen, beheld, and even touched our Lord. What he has to say, we accept. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.